We celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that is hugely important. Because, I don't know whether you know it, but the whole of Christianity, the whole of the Christian life, hangs upon one fact, without which nothing is nothing holds together. It is the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, If he did not rise from the dead, we of all Christians are the most pitiable. Think about it. The, the reality of Christianity does not depend upon just the fact that Jesus did good things or that the Bible teaches good things for us to practice for a good life. It doesn't hang upon the fact that Jesus taught us good morals. It doesn't even hang on the fact that Christianity is generally a good thing for the world. It hangs on the fact of Jesus' resurrection, that He actually rose from the dead. And if He did not rise from the dead, we might as well go home. There are better things to do on a Sunday morning. And all the priests, bishops, pastors, and all those who work full-time in church should actually find some other job. That's actually what Paul is saying. What he's saying is this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians are the most pathetic of all people. So what I want to do is to, 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 to present to you the resurrection, not to prove to you the resurrection, but perhaps to uh, share with you something that the disciples experienced when Jesus was crucified and the whole Jesus movement came to an end, just like that on the cross. And so let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read to you um, probably the most miserable day for the disciples. And I'm going to read it uh, from verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. Or in the ESV, I think it's wives' tales, old wives' tales. And they would not believe them. But, Jesus, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his room, marveling at what had happened. So as far as Luke chapter 24, up to this verse, as far as the verdict of the disciples was concerned, what the women saw, that the, Jesus was not in the tomb anymore, the, 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 the sepulchre, the linens were all separate, and the stone had been rolled away. As far as they were concerned, the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead was actually nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. 
So it's not true to say that people in Jesus' time, you know, the, in, in the ancient Near East, were so primitive, so unscientific, that they could so easily believe such things. No, they actually were scientific enough to believe that if a man dies and he's dead for three days, chances are he's dead. And that if someone says that he rose from the dead, they are being unscientific. So I will put it to you that actually it was very implausible to them that uh, Jesus had risen from the dead. They were not converted into believing that Jesus would rise from the dead. So we have to ask the question, what's so compelling about the evidence that has caused billions of people since then to actually stake their life upon it and die for the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead, right? And so the part that I want to actually focus on today, this morning, is actually from verse 13, okay? Are we ready? Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Or another translation says he drew near. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are those words that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? So he's playing the stupid, yeah? It, <laughs> he was the one <laughs> concerned. And so he's kind of leading them on, okay? They're leading them on. What things? I'm innocent. And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And said, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? We come back to that again. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And basically showed them that Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the prophets had spoken that, that this must happen, that he should be crucified and then raised from the dead. And they approached the village, and as they approached the village where they were going, he acted as though he was going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting towards evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them, and when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. 
And then their eyes were opened. Before their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, now their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen. And he has appeared to Simon or Peter. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. I guess this most glorious day, the day when Jesus rose from the dead, was the gloomiest day for the disciples. And as they were walking along the road, we call this in, in Christian tradition, the road to Emmaus. The road to Emmaus. And these two disciples had been walking on this road to Emmaus into a village and Jesus comes by at that time. They were completely despondent. Their plans, their ambitions, their expectations had completely been dashed. And there was a way in which everything had fallen apart. Like the song says, um, all my plans have fallen through. All my plans depend upon you. There's a way in which what they experienced is relatable. And I wonder whether there are some of us who have experienced something like that. Plans that have fallen through, have fallen apart. The best laid plans have somehow disintegrated. And life has not turned out exactly the same way as you expected. And on the road of life towards our Emmaus, it seems to me quite a common thing that our best plans, our best expectations, our best um, desires can often experience tremendous disappointment, tremendous destruction just because of circumstances not working out the same way. And the disciples were no different. They were expecting that in the three years that they had been with Jesus, great hopes that all the prophets had, that had uh, prophesied about a Messiah who would redeem Israel would be fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus had done miracles. He spoke like no one else spoke. And these disciples were part of that Jesus band that was going to be part of God's plan to restore Israel and cause the nations of, of the world to come to Israel. And, and uh, as, as uh, Micah says, that they will come to the mountain of the Lord and uh, Israel will teach the nations about the way of, of Torah, the way of Yahweh. They were so excited that in these three years, every day they could see something different, something wonderful that bore out the fact that the Messiah was come, had come and the Messiah would throw off the chains and the oppression of the Romans, so much so that the Israeli identity could be restored, that Israel's prophetic uh, purposes would be restored. The disciples believed that that was true. They studied the scriptures. They studied, studied the Torah. They studied the law. And they could see through the law, there was a thread that was running, running through it that pointed to Jesus it has to be Jesus. And in the few days before his Jesus' crucifixion, he had prophesied that 
they would go into a city, and in that city, they would find a man and a donkey with a, and a, and a foal, a, a young donkey next to it. And all they needed to do is to go to that man and say, the master has need of this. And the man would release the donkey, they would release a room to them, and everything would be taken care of. This had been prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. He said, the Messiah that comes, who will redeem Israel, will come humble and uh, riding upon a donkey, and the foal of a donkey. Everything lined up. Their study of scriptures showed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he would cause them to experience their Israeli identity again. That the Jews would no longer be under oppression of the hegemonous Roman Empire. Everything was going to plan. He, he ticked off all the criteria for a genuine Messiah. There had been other Messiahs, would-be Messiahs that had come. There was the teacher of righteousness that we know about among the Qumran community. There, were, there was Eve uh, Hophni, the circle drawer, and many, many others who had done some miracles and were good teachers. They were rabbi, rabbis, some of them were prophets, some of them were warriors, some of them were king-like people. But all of them had died. They would come in and they would just extinguish, be extinguished uh, in the face of the Seleucids or the Greeks or against the Romans. But this was different. This was very, very different. And so the disciples were excited about the fact that Jesus would come. But to their horror, just hours after Jesus had come triumphantly on that donkey that Zechariah had prophesied about, he was brought up before the Sanhedrin, behind the, before the council, and then before the Romans, and publicly humiliated. There was no dignity left in him. He was completely um, torn apart, literally torn apart on the cross. And now it was three days after that, and all their plans had fallen through. All the plans that depended upon Jesus had completely fallen through because Jesus had fallen through. And that's how it was for them. I believe that there are people who are here who have experienced something of that, that the best laid plans have fallen through and you don't know what to believe anymore. And so there they are and Jesus comes and the, and the writer Luke is very, very detailed. He even notes their their, their, um, their irritation at Jesus when he comes and asks him and pokes around and asks these questions. What? Are you the only one who's here who never even heard about this? Jesus says, what, 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 what? And they, get, they show their irritation to him. Luke is very interesting because of the fact that he focuses in, into the, the narrative, into the action there. And uh, he's very interested in their human, human uh, reactions to this. But I want to look, look at this as, as Jesus walks with them and they, I suppose on that road, they don't know where they're going to anyway, anymore. They're going to Emmaus, but as far as life is concerned, they don't know where they're going. I wonder whether there are some of us who are experiencing this. I sense that there are some who have maybe recently found that what you've depended upon and you really believed in believed would happen, the kind of life that you had uh, crafted for yourself. 
has come to a place of critical disruption. And I believe that God has brought you here because He wants to speak to you in this juncture in your life. And just as the disciples were experiencing this on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is here as well to draw near to you. Anyway, they started telling, telling him the story and then he says, verse 25, Oh foolish man, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? I'm struck by that. That Jesus said, wasn't it necessary that what happened should take place? What do you mean? The disciples would say, is this necessary? This is the very thing that destroyed it. What are you talking about? This is necessary. What Jesus was saying is this, that setback that you experienced was necessary. You see, what Jesus was saying is this, I needed to go to the cross. I need to suffer, needed to suffer these things because what you have going for you is not enough to redeem yourselves. What you need is something to deal with a deeper problem that you have. And that problem is the problem of sin. The problem of your own brokenness. The problem of your inability to live at God's best for you. You may have your political and, and, and material um, plans for yourself. You, have in mind, you may have in mind your, work as a work, your life as a work of art. But there's a one problem, and that is that you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself. The very best marriage will be destroyed, not by external things, but by yourself. You can't help being yourself. You can't help living in the sin that you have, you are, that, that is your nature. And what Jesus was saying is this, don't you know that it was necessary for a deeper issue to be taken care of? Not just the issue of you needing to be not oppressed or you needing justice from the, from the hegemonic Roman Empire. There's a deeper problem that is that calls you to never be able to fulfill God's purposes for your life. And that is that you have a problem of sin. You have no power within your own nature to be able to overcome your aberrations. Whatever you do, whatever you touch, whoever you marry no matter how good that person is, cannot help but suffer at your hands because of the fact that you can't overcome your own darkness. And what, how it happens is that Jesus begins to talk to them and says, all those plans that you had, all those readings of Scripture were readings that said, God is going to do this great thing for me and I'm going to have great, great future because of God. And you didn't realize that at the core of it, what God needed to do is to change you. There is something in you that needs to be killed, that has to die. That is your own sin nature. If that does not get dealt with, you can make the best laid plans, you can have the best um, uh, judicial processes, you may have the best government, you may have the best people around you, you may have the best talents, you may have, you may the, may the, may have the most resources, and you will still come up against yourself again. Because in the freedom that you are looking for, you will not be able to, fact, to, to, to avoid the fact that your freedom will bring in your self-will. Your self-will will destroy you. 
And what Jesus said is this. The prophet spoke about something else that needed to take place. Have you, have you read Isaiah 53? In Isaiah 53, um, it, the prophet spoke, prophet Isaiah spoke about the fact that we have a problem. And the problem is that we have the burden of disease in our personality. We have a disease in our heart that causes us to have sorrows and burdens and not be able to help ourselves. And then he speaks about the Son of Man, the Messiah. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face from, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs him he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, what Isaiah was saying is this. When Jesus came, he had to deal with something that was in our DNA, that's something that had been embedded in us, in our personality, in our character, in our hearts. Because of the fall. And because of the fall, we had been sold into the hands of the devil. Demonic powers that we could not overcome. And Isaiah 53 speaks about the fact that Jesus had to come in and to carry those sorrows for us. Our brokenness, our sorrows, our burdens, our sickness, our disease, our oppression. And what Jesus was basically saying is this, something more basic needed to happen for us rather than just some judicial kind of, some kind of military um, power that would overcome the Romans. If that, even if that was overcome, you will be still stuck with the bondage of ourselves. That's why fathers and mothers with the best intentions for the children cannot help destroying so much of their hearts. That's why people who have the best intentions for, 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 for others that they're living with cannot help offending and hurting others. But there's also this problem, and that, that is that we can't, we can't overcome the damage that's taken place to our own soul, to our own diseased soul. And we can't overcome our past. And what Jesus said is this, did you not know that the Son of Man had to be Suffering. Why? Because nobody could carry your burden for you. No matter how, how, how much a price you paid, you cannot pay for your own burdens. I had to carry it for you. And so when Jesus died to, on the cross and he came in, what's not understood by many Christians is this, that he upon himself carried my, our diseases. He carried our sicknesses. He carried our past. He carried our broken lives. He, broke, he carried upon himself our broken emotions, our broken soul. So much so that on himself, on the cross, he carried all the burdens of the world. Every sin that you, you have committed, everything that you are shameful about, everything that has destroyed your future, everything that has happened to make your plans fall through, he has carried it upon himself. He has taken your life and my life 
The broken places, the older you get, the more broken, brokenness you experience. Don't you know that? <laughs> I'm 64. I know more than most people. <laughs> I know my faults. I know how bad I can get. But Jesus, Isaiah 53 says, and this is what the prophets were saying, carried it upon himself so much so that I don't need to carry my own burdens. I can't, don't have to carry the shame of my own past. The price for my own sins. My own iniquities. I don't have to carry it upon myself. It was laid upon Jesus. And what Jesus was saying is this. You need that to take, take, be taken care of before you try to do anything else for the world. Because the world will not fix itself. The world is utterly diseased. It is so deeply diseased that even the very best people with the very best intentions cannot help by hurt, but hurt others. We are corruptible and we can't help ourselves. Not only that, our life is marked by death. I was at a funeral service um, a few weeks ago and just meditating upon the fact that no matter what your life has been, at the point of death, none of it counts anymore. None of the, the memories count anymore. Except for the fact that beyond death, there is eternal life. The futility of life, if not for God, it's crushing. No TED Talk will help me on the day I die. Nothing from Anthony Robbins can help me. No chocolate will help me. No ice cream. Not even Chinese food. Nothing can help me. No pastor, no priest, no prophet has anything to say to me because today I die. And I believe that this is something that when Jesus took upon himself death upon the cross and he, lay, and he, and he hung on the cross, the enemy, the devil, threw every bad, evil thing that existed upon him. And he carried it. He bore our suffering. Isn't that amazing? And that last enemy, the Bible says, is death. And death came upon him, tried to claw him down from the cross, completely destroyed it. But at the end, he did not succeed. And when he was done, he said, it is finished. You know what that meant? It meant... The devil has thrown everything that he could upon me, everything that he'll throw upon you and me. He has thrown everything upon Jesus and did not succeed in killing him. Isn't that amazing? When he said that, he said, it's finished. You know what he was saying? Devil, it's finished for you. I've done everything. There is nothing my people will face that has not already been overcome by me. When Jesus said it was necessary for the Son of Man to die first, he was saying, unless that happens, you are still in your sins. You are still proscribed by death. And at the last day, nothing matters anymore. You will go to the ground and be forgotten. And even if you're remembered, it won't affect you. You get no benefit from it. What Jesus was saying is this, it was necessary for me to do that. And there are some of us who have experienced tremendous disappointment 
And in this disappointment, you have felt, I don't know what to believe anymore. I can't believe in myself. I can't believe in anybody. I don't know whether I can believe in God. And the disciples had something like that. They had a certain reading of Scripture that made the Scripture all about their own personal benefit. What Jesus was saying is, no, none of this can happen yet until you die to yourself. Give your life to me. And I'll take up your life. I've destroyed every power that comes against you, that comes against your best intentions. Amen? And so he shared this with them. And as he shared this with them, they were locked in to the truth because his presence had come. He had drawn near. And I want to say this, this, and this will be my last point before we close. If you look back at... um, Luke chapter 24, verse 28, they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further. That's a really interesting thought. He acted as though he was going further, but they urged him saying, stay with us. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in and to stay with them. And when they had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he, gave it, he began to give it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And then he vanished. I wonder whether Jesus was giving them a chance to get out of themselves. And not let life just pass by. Sometimes as Christians, we just want God to do everything for us. And sometimes I find that Christians can be emotionally immature. Because we are saying, God, if you want me to do this, just you do it for me. And Jesus did not actually do it for them. He left it to them to choose whether they want more of him or not. And he knew that their hearts were burning as he came by. I want to put it to you that God begins to reconstruct our life, rebuild our lives and make it new when you let him come near. And as he came near, they could feel something was taking place. And perhaps today you're feeling that during our service. Perhaps today you're feeling something is happening and I feel my heart is burning within me. That's because Jesus is nearby. You see, it's not what to do and a thousand how-tos that's important. It's the presence of God. Only the presence of God can change us. Only the presence of God can change us and make everything new. And so they saw it. But perhaps unlike before where they were, their hearts were slow to believe, slow to grab onto things, they knew something was happening. And they did something that perhaps they never did. Jesus looked like he was walking on. And they said, hold it. I may not get another opportunity. Stop. Please don't go. Please don't go. I don't know when I can have another chance to have my life changed. I don't know whether I could could have another chance to have my life reconstructed again and renewed. Please. I don't know what you're about. But can you come close? Could you come to my house? 
And I want to put it to you that some of us have missed many opportunities. God was there standing at the door of your heart and you felt something, but you just let it go. If God's going to do something, He's going to do it. No, 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 no. What was needed was for them to say, I'm going to come out of myself. I'm not going to look at the scriptures as just for myself, for my own self-will. I want to come out of myself. Jesus, come. I need you. I don't know what you're going to do to me. I don't know what you're going to do, but can you please come to my house? And they ate with him. And as he ate with them, something happened. Their hearts opened and they saw it. They recognized something they could not recognize on their own. Their eyes were, were, were blinded. Their hearts were slow. But when Jesus' presence came and they invited him into their house, something opened up. Faith is not trying to believe. Faith is not like, okay, I'm going to give up my mind and, I, and, I, and I, I'm just going to jump in and believe. Do you know it's possible for you to believe things that are scientific? Sorry, it's possible for you to not believe things that are scientifically proven? Do you know that? I showed once a video of some people in, 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 in some, some highlands in, in, in China, 17,000 feet, and they built a bridge across two mountains, 17,000 feet in height. It was glass, though. And they had to walk. And every proof had been given to them that the glass upon which they were standing was firm. It would carry hundreds of times their weight. They knew it, but they couldn't believe. And so you see in this video, these people who are just like, ah, no, 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 no. And they had to be dragged across. Their legs couldn't move. Their legs couldn't believe. It's possible that belief is not just a matter of believing something that's implausible, but belief is something inside us that has not been overcome by the truth. That belief, belief it has to do with the fact that somehow my soul, my emotions, my being can be in line with the truth and it powers me across the 17,000 feet. I wonder whether it's possible for us to begin to experience the reality of God, not because we just try to believe, but because belief hits us. And the, the New Testament has a very interesting word for that, that kind of belief. Not the belief that comes from it, but I'm trying to believe something that is implausible, but belief that comes because the reality of that thing hits you. you are, it hits you with a certain force. It's, called, it's the word apodixis. It's such that because of the reality of that person or that, 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 that thing, it hits you in such a way that you cannot not believe. Cannot not believe. Amen? Uh, I'm, before we close, uh, some years ago, I was involved in an accident. And before that accident, I had taken over a, a church and God was really moving great things in that church. And we were so exciting uh, in Kuala Lumpur. And, and many people who had come to my church prophesied and spoke about how the church is a great future. And I was the pastor of that church. And I'd been pastoring that church for about a year and a half. And then suddenly, when that ha accident happened, it happened in November 1989, I, my car crashed into a, in a stationary crane and my eyes were completely... Uh, my, my eyeballs were crushed. 
And uh, the left eyeball had actually come out of the socket, and I could not see. I was blind, completely blind. My femur had broken, and I was rushed to the hospital. When I was rushed to the hospital, the doctor started looking at me. Actually, the people who were in the, in the ICU just, just could not stand it. One of them just vomited when they saw me. There was so much blood and all that. And the doctor said, I'm afraid you will never be able to see again. And all the plans, all the hopes, and all the, the, even the spiritual hopes for me, completely gone. It's like I had to, to reckon with a life in which I will have to learn Braille and not be able to do the normal things that I could do. No more preaching in the same way as, as before. And I felt something of this apodixis hit me with some force. I don't know how I could believe it, but belief came to me. Because Jesus came by, you see? It's an objective thing. It stands over against me. He came and he said, I'm going to take you through. You're going to be experiencing my glory in your life. They wrapped up my eyes and, they, and I could not, I didn't know what was going on. And then for some reason, the doctor opened them up again. And I was shocked. I could see lights. I could see lights. And I said, I can see. Well, I couldn't actually see. I could see lights. (laughs) The doctor said, no, you cannot see. Because you are blind. Your eyes are completely gone. Even now, they're filled with glass. You can't. I said, I can. I can see. And And she said, how many fingers? And I could see four glorious fingers. So clearly. I said, four. Praise God, I said. You know, because when appendicitis hits you, you can't help it. You can't help saying, praise God. It, you're taken over by something more real than your feelings. That is the kind of reality of God we want. Amen? And what God said, and, and, and I was healed. They had to change my glasses. My glasses had to be lowered in their power. And I see an author... What do you call it, eye doctor? Ophthalmologist. I see them every five years, and every time I see a different ophthalmologist, he says, what happened to your eyes? And I tell him the story, and he says, and I've been told by Buddhists, by Hindus, by Muslims, and by atheists, God is with you. Amen. And, and God had great other purposes. It was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer so that he could carry our burdens, yours and mine. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of the breakage of hope, the breakage of plans and hopefulness, you are the God who has more for us. And I pray for every person who's come to a place where They wonder, what can I believe anymore? And yet we believe that when you come near for a moment or two, something stirs in our hearts. Something burns within us. And we actually can give assent 
to the fact that you're real and we actually recognize that you're real. But Lord, we have more basic issues, the issue of our own self. And so we ask you that even now, that if it's really true that you took upon yourself all our sins, our burdens, our old nature, the nature of sin, you took upon yourselves, upon yourself, our death, our lives that are marked by death. We ask you that you give us your life. Take our lives right now. Take my life. I'm going to pray a prayer, and if that is echoes the prayer of your heart, you can say amen to it. Lord Jesus, I need you. I cannot help myself. I cannot help the trajectory, the way I'm going. But if it's true that you are drawing near, take my life and exchange it with yours. I want to see a miracle happen, and I need a miracle. Take my addiction, take my bondage, take my guilt, my shame. Take all that expanse of time in which I've messed up and I face the consequences of that. Take it, Lord. Could you do this unbelievable miracle that all that can be cancelled? Not because you just cancelled it, but because you took it upon yourself on my behalf. I thank you for giving your life for me. I surrender my life to you. If God is speaking to you and you want to say amen, I want to invite you to say amen right now. Just quietly in your heart, just amen. All eyes closed, all heads bowed. If God's been speaking to you, just lift your hands up. Just lift up your hands. Just say, yes, I give my life to you. Just lift up your hands. I give up my life to you. Take it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.